Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm one of the hosts, Alejandra Bronfman, and my guest today is Edward Theus. He's the author of a new book from the University of North Carolina Press entitled Pigmentocracies, Ethnicity, Race, and Color in Latin America. This book is somewhat unusual in that it's the product of the collective work of a team of researchers spread out across four countries. They've posed some really interesting questions and obtained some fascinating and often quite surprising data about the current state of thinking and doing based on race, ethnicity, and importantly, appearance in Latin America. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for being with me today. Nice to be here, Alejandro. Could we start off with you talking a little bit about your own uh, career and your trajectory as a sociologist and how you came to this uh, this interest in race and ethnicity? I began, uh, well, I was interested in race and ethnicity, I guess, when I went to graduate school. I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I was interested in race and ethnicity widely, but largely about immigration but I was really interested in, I was also interested in Latin America, but more from understanding, uh, in a way of understanding urban poverty and from a social demographic perspective. Uh, and so, so I've had these two parallel tracks. One is looking at immigration in the U.S. Uh, it has to do with ethnicity, of course. The other also, uh, the other is on Latin America. And so I began studying urban poverty and kind of the social determinants of inequality using um, secondary data, and the best secondary data at the time was was clearly Brazil. So I was looking at that. Uh, so I was looking at urban poverty, and and I was I developed a dissertation that was largely about Brazil, uh, and uh, and so I was looking at kind of the determinants, what, what kinds of things are associated with poverty, uh, and how to do with class and gender, and then this thing about race came, you know, was it, it was coming up? It was. It's, it was an important variable in the Brazilian census in their household surveys. So it's looking at different kinds of poverty or different kinds of kind of stratification, informal labor markets. Um, and um, this race thing keep, keeps coming up, and I couldn't explain it um, away. So I said, well, you know, it's really interesting. Even though the literature talks about uh, the fact that race and racism were not important, and uh, but some of it, there was a uh, small amount of research that was coming up at the time, uh, particularly research by Carlos Hasenbog and Nelson Duvali Silva that were basically were going against the currents and saying race is important in Brazil. So I wasn't really interested in particular in race and ethnicity. And I did a, I did a, after I went to graduate school, I did a postdoc uh, at the University of Campinas. And, uh, and I kept looking at that, and sure enough, everybody around me was telling me, oh, no, we don't have that race issue in Brazil. It's all about class. I mean, if you're getting these differences, it's all about class. You know, that was the best explanation they could give. Sometimes they said just race doesn't exist. Uh, discrimination and inequality, it's just, this is an American thing. Uh, and um, so, so um, I looked around, well, how do you explain, how do you explain that look at all the people that are, or most of the people that are in the favela are, are black and everybody living around where you live uh, is white, unless they're disturbance or something like that. And um, and uh, they basically said it was it was class. So 
Uh, but, you know, you look at indicators of class that demographers use, like parental parents' occupation when they were young, uh, these different things. It doesn't make it go away. So I, be- I became interested in that, um, and I published some on, on informal labor markets and, and uh, poverty. Uh, and, you know, race was an important determinant. So, well, it basically kind of confirms with this counter uh, counter racial democracy hypothesis. Is. And, uh, and uh, but people really became interested in it. And it was interesting from the perspective of, of race and ethnicity. So, what was written on race and ethnicity uh, in Brazil was, um, and most of it was showing, I mean, stuff by Carl Degler. Um, uh, Donald Pearson, some of the people writing in the U.S. <clears throat> were basically saying, well, it's not that important. It's not like in the U.S. I mean, they weren't saying it was unimportant. Uh, and, and so I started looking at some of the literature and directly testing and and, uh, and examining more in depth this issue of race in Brazil. So Brazil is important because, I mean, I think for the for people in the U.S., it was, it was kind of fascinating uh, what was going on in Brazil. And I think eventually I, I basically said, well, it is race is important, but it's important for uh, for for in, in the manifestations of it are very different uh, than in the U.S. And one of the things that surprises people in the U.S. is is, is I show them the numbers. I mean, I, t- I start my classes and I said, well, there's one number you have to remember, and this is five percent. Less than five percent of the slave uh, Af- enslaved Africans that were brought to the to the Americas were brought to to the United States. Uh, and Brazil has about 11 times as many, about 50% of all the enslaved Africans. So, so the numbers are, are huge. So the history and the history of slavery is just it was much more thoroughgoing than than in the U.S., where it's more regionally more regionally concentrated. So anyway, so that that developed that that piqued my interest, and I started developing that. And I did my parallel work with immigration, and then I expanded and I did uh, work on Latin America, and that's the subject of the slaves book. So this is a really unusual book in the sense that it's the end product of a large collective project that spans four countries and includes lots of researchers, right? And they're right. all pursuing a set of questions about race, race, ethnicity, and what you call a pigmentocracy, which is a really interesting term. And, but before we get to that term and the results of those studies, I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the inspiration and the inception of that project itself and how it was organized. Right. Well, there is there is an expense. So when I started working on this, there were very few people working in the field. Um, and and um, in the last ten or fifteen years, it's expanded a lot. And uh, I mean, still relative to the U.S., I mean, it's a, it's a tiny number of people that are working on this. But one of the one of the, I guess a concern. Um, the concern is, oh, this is Brazil. Before it was just the U.S. No, it's, it's Brazil. It's different. So, so how are these other places in, different? And, and we know the the U that the, the Americas in, in general had this um, have had a very different kind of ideology. Although there's a lot of heterogeneity within the Americas, right? So, so one, the countries are very different within within the the Americas. So it might be different from Brazil. But secondly, there's clearly a distinction with, also a distinction, probably even a bigger distinction with the U.S. in many ways. Um, so, so the, the people, in addition to the uh, English literature, there were people 
in other countries that were working on this, particularly in Colombia. Uh, so I was interested in race in Colombia, and uh, and then I met people in Peru that were working on this. And then, in the case of Mexico, Mexico is a really special case. People in Mexico were interested. So these are four large countries in Latin America that had some people working on this, but in different kinds of ways. So the original idea was, how do you bring... Uh, so, but there were there wasn't much interaction among the countries. So, so the idea I had was, well, let's bring people talking about these things uh, at high levels in their countries and bring them together and start to formulate uh, common research questions and eventually develop a common uh, research design uh, to to look at these national differences. Yeah, that part of it was really fascinating to me because it does often seem that people do national studies of race and ethnicity, but never these kinds of comparative ones. And so I was really curious as to the process of how you settled on the method and how you settled on the questions themselves, because they're very specific um, and they and they and they seem to yield really interesting results. So how 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 did that process work? Okay, so so once I assembled. Uh a team of two to four people in each of these four different countries. Uh, we met. We met several times, uh, and the first two times we're basically talking about uh, the debate in our countries, and and basically trying to talk about trying to talk each other to each other about what are the important issues. And at the very beginning, there were there were some conflicts. Not only well, there's personality conflicts also, but 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 there were also uh, conflicts about approaches and what's the best way to approach these things. So people felt they weren't being heard. And so eventually that we reached uh, amazing consensus, but after two or three meetings, uh, and then we design, we designed, uh, and we, at the second meeting, we had designed a common set of questions and we developed a survey instrument. So we met, I mean, we were funded by the Ford foundation. Fortunately, we had uh, funding so that we could do, we could do one, we could do the surveys and, uh, the 12 of us, uh, in the in five countries, uh, could come together uh, and meet several times. So, getting to the terms of the book and the way that it's framed, what is pigmentocracy? Well, the idea of pigmentocracy is—I mean, this is actually a term that you hear used once in a while. I mean, I think Stuart Hall uh, often refers to pigmentocracies. It refers to Britain and other countries like it that have racial stratification. Is pigmentocracies is a pigmentocracy. Um, so pigmentocracies refers to the to the four countries, um, but originally the term came out in 1944 uh, in this book by Alejandro Lipschitz, who's a who's a Chilean anthropologist, and he's a, that's the first reference I could find to it. But he was talking about it uh, about two different systems of stratification both of which you could call racial. But one, he's talked about how Latin America has this, this racial stratification. He was, he was talking about how blacks and indigenous people are at the bottom and white people are at the top, uh, or Europeans are at the top. And then he talked about something about a color stratification. And, but he was talking about those almost as, or pretty much as if they were synonymous, never distinguishing the two systems. So... So I think the people visually, if you look at the cover of the book, it looks it's it's it looks like a color spectrum, um, and 
visually a skin color spectrum goes from from kind of pinkish all the way to to very dark brown and uh so visually you know that kind of uh, leads you to think about uh a racial hierarchy in terms of skin color well that's what we did we did look at skin color but we also looked at kind of these categorical distinctions of people that call themselves black or 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 white or mulatto or, or mestizo or 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 um indigenous etc and um, <clears throat> those two systems i mean there's some correlation but they're also very different so we so one of the things one of the main findings uh is that is that the color distinctions and you have color skin color rated by the interviewer uh is actually a it looks like a racial hierarchy so that light skinned people it's a very clear racial hierarchy so the lighter the skin color the higher occupation income education wealth better health uh and then people, political scientists have been looking at it um political indicators like trusting government so so basically it goes in the direction you'd expect and so the darkest and so and, and it's a nice little uh it's a nice downward slope in most places uh where the darkest skin people are um the people with the lowest income occupation education uh they have the worst health that are least trustful of government uh they believe that it takes police longer to respond uh to crime in their neighborhoods etc so so um but when you look at categories and the way people self identify it kind of went all over the place so that sometimes the mestizos were better off than people that call themselves white Sometimes mulattoes were better off than people that call themselves white. Um so uh so the distinctions were not those kinds of distinctions that people regularly call race uh were not uh as good as at predicting a hierarchy as actual skin color was. Right, and that was for me one of the most interesting and surprising findings of the entire book and I want in a minute to just go through each country and think about the nuances of that of those correlations and end of that argument. Uh but before we get to that, I just wanted to ask about um one thing that seemed to be framing the entire study is this kind of recent turn to multiculturalism in the region and in different ways in different countries. And so I was wondering if that actually did precipitate the study in the first place given that that turn to multiculturalism is really a turn away from and sometimes an incomplete one from the ideologies of mestizaje that had pervaded for such a long time in Latin America. <clears throat> Right. I think so so that in these four countries and in much but not all of Latin America uh you have this these ideologies of mestizaje. Uh and mestizaje is basically the idea of race mixture. And race mixture is something that, you know, because of race mixture, uh you sometimes people make the leap that that um and sometimes actually the national narrative makes the leap and says well race is not important in these countries and often that's in contrast to the US i mean these so these are developed by uh by um elites in these countries uh often uh in uh, making these uh developing these narratives in contrast to the United States where at the time and this is the 30s and the 40s where at the time um the United States had segregation Yeah, uh, South Africa had apartheid and of course, you know, the um this was at the beginning of of kind of the Nazi or around the time of the of, of the Nazis. So so that that held for a long time and I think it, it since the 90s, well actually, it since the 90s, 
constitutions, a lot of the constitutions uh, in Latin America uh, have begun to recognize that they're, they are multicultural and there's indigenous people uh, and in some cases there's uh, Afro-descendants uh, and that and that those separate cultures and, and their rights have to be respected. And sometimes it's not necessarily a national narrative, but it's it's a constitutional recognition, often uh, motivated by international uh, commitments that they've made to to uh, UN conventions, like like the um, the Convention on Indigenous People and uh, the International Labor Organization One Sixty Nine. Um, so, so it's kind of like it, it's uh, so Mestizaje is still strong in many ways, uh, and it still guides people in many ways. Uh, but at the same time, there's these, there's these, this recognition of multiculturalism, uh, at least constitutionally. Now, the case of Brazil is different. Uh, the case of Brazil, there's clearly there's been uh, widespread affirmative action beginning in 2001, and since then the affirmative action has grown and grown. Uh, and uh, and I think the society has taken a U-turn on this on this thinking about about race, where it's really gone from racial democracy to widespread recognition that there's racial discrimination, uh, and uh, unlike unlike uh, most of the other countries. Right, and the the Brazil case is a really interesting. You call it a puzzle in your chapter on Brazil, and I think that that's a really it's a really nice way to put to put it. Um, but if we could get, if we could start with Mexico, actually, and you mentioned the kind of the persistence of mestizaje, it seemed, or the ideology of mestizaje, rather, it seemed like that was one of the place, places where that was the strongest. One of the oh. interesting things that I found about Mexico was that you argue that. First of all, that whiteness doesn't correlate to status, which I found really fascinating. And then also that skin color doesn't correlate to ethnic identity. And so I wonder if you can kind of unpack that a little bit for us. Uh, right. Well, okay, so we had four um, collaborators that worked on the Mexico chapter, um, including uh, uh, a graduate student of mine. And I, and I worked closely with them, uh, but, it was, but that chapter was... Uh, mostly their authorship, uh, but um, so I can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, the idea. So first of all, the, your first point about about um, Mexico is that this defense of mestizaje is apparently stronger than in the other countries, um, and um, so the discussions about racism and about policy, maybe to redress some of that, have n- have not been uh, as extensive is in the case of, of Colombia and Peru, and clearly not like no, no countries near Brazil. Um, so, so the other issue is, so there hasn't been much research. Um, so one of the things that we look at, when we look at uh, ethnic identification, and the idea of Mestizaje, part of the idea of Mestizaje is that, is that this is a way to include the entire population so you don't have these, these ethnic uh, divisions like, between the indigenous and non-indigenous, uh, but but uh, which still, I mean, there's still, at the same time there's mestizaje, there's a recognition that there's indigenous, non-indigenous divisions, uh, but they're minimized. Uh, and the idea is that you know, except for the indigenous people, the few people that call themselves indigenous, and that's that's another issue, uh, is how many people are indigenous. Except for the indigenous people, everybody in Mexico is a, a mestizo. But we found that in Mexico, I think 10, between 10 and 15 percent 
of the population calls itself white. But the people that are calling themselves white uh, are not necessarily the lightest skin, but they tend to be uh, less well-off than mestizos. So it's apparently, it's apparently people that are, that are, that may have their skin colors capital. I mean, uh, whiteness or ethnic identity, you know, people call themselves white. I mean, this is a relational term, just like people call themselves black. So often it's, well, I'm whiter than everybody else around me. Uh, so it may be people that are relatively, so we, from what we could determine, it may be people that are relatively worse, relatively light skinned, uh, but not necessarily in the best, uh, economic situation. In fact, the people in better economic situation and that are more educated are more likely to call themselves mestizo kind of following, following this kind of national, this national identity of, of mestizo. So public education and, and the idea of a mestizo re- tends to reach uh, more highly educated people. That's the hypothesis. Yeah, that aspect of it was very fascinating to me. I had never really thought about that with regards to Mexico, but it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Colombia, you found that it is still a pigmentocracy. And I think one of the interesting things about the findings is that um, the, the notion of pigmentocracy remains throughout. It just is. It, it happens in very different ways, I guess. Um, and in Colombia, you argued that it was tempered by class and by gender. And I was really interested about the gender argument. How, can you talk a little bit about how that works? Well, um, it, there, there was, although we tried to reach, uh, we tried to um, address common questions, uh, each of the country collaborators uh, had their own had some latitude in how they wanted to frame the questions, right? So the idea was at least half of it would be kind of framed by a common concern. But the Colombia case, I don't think that gender is not important in the other countries, uh, but Colombia had a particular concern with gender. Um, and, and one of the interesting things about Colombia, for example, is that, is that women were less likely to be identified and classify themselves uh, as uh, as black or more, as black, so if, so fifteen percent uh, or twenty percent of the Colombian co- population calls itself itself black, it's disproportionately men. So, did they have a theory about why that was? Well, uh, the idea is is that is that is that black is a very uh, well two things. Um, men face more discrimination, racial discrimination, uh, and to call or be called uh, black can be very is maybe very in many um, quarters is seen as very stigmatizing, uh, and you're less a woman's less likely to be seen as black than a man than a man. Yeah, that's really um, that's really fascinating, and that even despite the fact that. The chapter does make the argument that official multiculturalism seems to have changed perceptions of race and racial hierarchies to a certain extent. Right, right. right. Well, except in Mexico, I would I would say, very, and we had a um, a book release and a conference in Mexico City at the Museum of Anthropology, which is kind of the cradle of of Mexican nationalism, uh, two weeks ago, and uh, and our findings surprised a lot of people. 
So I think this idea of multiculturalism uh, is relatively new in Mexico compared to the other countries. And in Colombia... Even though it's been recognized in the Constitution since 1994. In Mexico. In Mexico, right. And then in Colombia, it was recognized uh, in the early 2000s, is that right? Uh, multiculturalism? Uh, no, multiculturalism probably goes back, I think goes back to 92 or 93. Mm-hmm. Right, so a little bit longer. 70, yeah. So you get this kind of um, changing perceptions of race, but still the, the persistence of some of these hierarchies, even so. Right, right. Yeah. yeah I wanted to emphasize one other thing. Is it, is it um, the tendency has been for it, so people think, well, why these four countries? Well, four, there are four of the five largest countries in Latin America, um, or six. The other two countries didn't make sense, but anyway, they're four of the largest. But also they have, um, we wanted to get, uh, think of race more broadly than whites and blacks, like it's thought of in the United States, uh, but also look at indigenous people. Indigenous people who are a race and ethnicity, I mean, but indigenous people have been racialized. Black people have been ethnicized. And, and so we wanted to think of race ethnicity in, in, a, in a broader way. So we, we focused on indigenous people in Peru and Mexico, even though there are people that consider themselves or are considered black in both places. And we wanted to focus on, on Afro-descendants in Colombia and Brazil. Right, and the case of Peru is actually very interesting as well. And I think that the the chapter, the researchers in the chapter there argue that really socioeconomic status merges with both cultural and physical features the most closely, I think, as opposed to other places where there's a kind of disjuncture. Um, and so, and they also argue that it's about the perception of others, right? So that when someone's socioeconomic status rises, people's perception of their skin color but right. not necessarily their ethnicity changes, right? Well, well, skin color. We try to do this in a very uh, systematic and careful way. It's not, it's not perfect, but we had a skin color scale, what we call a skin color palette, uh, and it, and the interviewers classified uh, the skin color of the individuals based on the palette and, and their facial uh, color, and and they um, they did this before the interview or anything. So, so we try to minimize the um, association with, with socioeconomic status. But one of the things that was interesting about the Peruvian case was that um, is the identity, for example, as indigenous varies widely depending on how you ask the question. Uh, so if you ask people, are you, you consider yourself indigenous, uh, there's a particular wording from that taken partly sometimes, and you change the wording, but, but think of the categories. So if you, you consider yourself indigenous, and the category there is indigenous, uh, it's, all, it's less, we had about 5% of the population, even less than 5% of the population. But when you ask people if they're Quechua or Aymara, it goes up to 23% of the population. So a lot of the people that speak Quechua or Aymara and, and, um, and consider themselves Quechua or Aymara, and those are two two different, I mean, those might be different people, but a lot of, most of those people don't consider themselves, especially the Quechua, most of them don't consider themselves uh, uh, indigenous. So they think of themselves as, a lot of times, is, is you know, the, the indigenous people are those people on the hill uh, that speak only Quechua or only Aymara, and they're, they're, they're uncivilized, etc., 
Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I found most interesting about this book is that you managed both to demonstrate how fluid these categories can be, even in the sense that when you ask a different kind of question, the numbers change really radically. But then you also managed to offer some real sort of um, very convincing numbers about how it all works and how all of these things fit together. So I thought that that was really, really impressive uh, to pull off, uh, to, to try and do both of those those at once. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was really useful. And actually, one of the most interesting categories that I found you asked about was this question of the witnessing as opposed to the experience of discrimination. So you asked people whether they had witnessed discrimination, and then you asked I guess it was the same people whether they had experienced discrimination and you came up with very different kinds of results. Mm-hmm. So how did you come up with that question? Was that, was that something that everyone sort of agreed on was going to be an, an important part of the survey? Well, the quest, questions about, uh, about experiencing discrimination, uh, perceptions of discrimination are pretty common uh, in the United States. And they've been actually done uh, for immigrants in Europe. Uh, so in the U.S., they ask, you know, have you experienced, usually you ask um, uh, non-white uh, ethnic groups uh, when you do questionnaires. I mean, they ask whites too. So we found even among people that call themselves white, there was some. But clearly it's people or people that were light skin color ex- sometimes experienced discrimination, but the numbers were, were clearly much greater for people that were that were darker. Uh, but the, the idea of, of witnessing discrimination uh, that is not very commonly asked. In fact, I don't remember any other survey that's, that's asked this. Um, but, but we thought, take the Mexican case, and I think it was, um, you know, elites still defend mestizaje and the idea that there's no discrimination. And I, you know, I, I hear, I hear that once in a while. But if you ask the population in general, half the population will tell you that they've seen discrimination, uh, that they've witnessed it. So that kind of puts a lie to the idea that there's, that, you know, there might be an elite, or it doesn't put a lie to it, but, but this, this might be a, actually a, more of an elite view than, than a common people's view, yeah. common person's view. I thought that was really, really insightful. Um, so, okay, so for Brazil, and I found Brazil um, one of the most fascinating chapters, and as you say, there's been a lot written about race in Brazil and I found that this really added to it in, in important ways. But what I want to do is I, I want to just read a quote and see if you can um, help us figure out how all of this works. So you write, or the person who authored that chapter writes, quote, racial mixture and racial inequalities coexist as equally important facets of Brazilian race relations. The key puzzle is how persistent socioeconomic boundaries can coexist with weak symbolic boundaries among racial groups. And then you claim that the survey actually helps to, to tackle and, and, and uh, to tackle that puzzle and, and figure it out. So maybe you can walk us through that a little bit. Alejandra, I don't, I don't think I, I, I'd have to go back and look at that before I, before I commit myself to an explanation. <laughs> I mean, I think that what you're talking about there is the idea that, um, that, uh, you make an argument that, that people in Brazil understand themselves as sharing the same culture. Right. Um, and so those kinds of boundaries between different kinds of cultures that you might see in a place like Peru where there's a sort of, 
more distinct indigenous culture and, and European descended culture don't really exist. But the, the, the socioeconomic boundaries that divide people do persist and they do exist. Right. Right. Yeah, that might be, um, yeah, so I think, you know, part of the, maybe part of the racial democracy or messy site, I mean, uh, it, that these, um, that the people consider, said, well, they're not any different. Black people are just like white people, particularly they live in the same urban areas, although they may be very different socioeconomic status. Uh, and, and actually, so when you look at these things, like who participates uh, in, in Candomblé or, or Umana, in, these are considered Afro-Brazilian religions. Um, there are not many differences by race or by color. Uh, and so it's the idea that, well, these are these have become kind of national culture uh, that you really can't cut them uh, by race. Like you can in our other country where we have a lot of large Afro-descendant population is Colombia. And in the Colombian case, they understand... There's an increasing understanding of Afro Afro Colombians uh, as ethnically distinct. Indeed, the the law they have they have uh, gotten rights similar to rights given to indigenous peoples uh, to land and and cultural rights and and, and recognition in the census uh, because they've been recognized as as an ethnic group or as, as a group with a distinct culture. And this this has a long history uh, in in the '90s when uh, when anthropologists were the official uh, uh, determiners of uh, whether these people have separate culture or not, and that and that status was eventually given. It's an interesting story, but that status was eventually given to Afro-Colombians. Right, um, and in in a sense, you argue that Brazil has taken the sharpest turn to multiculturalism in the sense that it's the it's happened in, in the most visible way. Is that? Do you think that that's right? Well, it depends on what you call multiculturalism. I mean, I think there's constitutional multiculturalism, uh, and it's very clear in most countries. Uh, but I, the emphasis and, and the and multiculturalism meaning basically respect for other uh, people in other cultures. Uh, but in the U.S., in the Brazilian case, they've gone beyond that. And it's about uh, recognizing racial discrimination and going to the point of reparations for racial discrimination, such as widespread affirmative action. No other country has uh, done that. Right. And that, and that seems to distinguish Brazil and maybe is sending them off in a, in a different kind of path. Right. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about this book is that uh, I found it really interesting in the way that it combines historical and discursive analysis with survey data. So the, the chapters are often divided up so that the first part sort of gives you a historical background and a lot of discursive background in terms of how race has been imagined and talked about. And then you get to the survey data and it really tries to combine these and, and relate them to one another. And that's quite unusual, I think. And I'm just wondering um, if you found those to be the most useful tools to get at, at what you wanted to get at and how you how you came to sort of put those two together as the most important aspects of what you wanted to, to argue. Right. Um, you know, I, you could, we could present survey. It would have been a lot easier to do a book, just present the data. Right. Um, but presenting the data in such different places, and especially for a U.S. reader who might be interested in race and ethnicity, it doesn't really make a lot of sense 
unless you can put this in some kind of context. So by presenting the historical and the political and the social context, uh, we could try to make sense uh, of the results. In fact, that's what I did in my, my own Brazil research, and I think it was successful largely because of that. Right, yeah. So it seems like that also contributed to these two arguments that are based in nations, insofar as the connections to the nationalist ideologies and state policies actually made a difference with regards to racial practices and categories. Yeah, yeah. You know, the um, the other thing is 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 that these are we want this we wanted these chapters to be useful for U.S. readers, of course. But we're translating in, in we're having book releases in uh, well, we had them in, in uh, Colombia and Mexico, and we're going to have one in Peru uh, and probably Brazil. Uh, and uh, so we wanted to have an impact in those countries, uh, and then we're going to translate into Spanish and Portuguese. We're in the process right now of securing publishers. Um, so, so um, the idea is, is um, to deconstruct some of these ideas, like Mestizaje. So how did the Mestizaje is not there and everybody thinks it's Mestizaje? No, it's not there. It was created. Uh, and so how did it develop? It, de- it often developed in response to previous ideas of widening and improving the nation. Uh, you know, re- uh, and it was always underscored. Mestizaje and whitening were, and multiculturalism are really uh, motivated large by these countries wanting to be modern. So there's this idea of, of, of modernity. Um, so, so basically, we want, we want to take it a step back and ba- basically say, these are ideologies. These, are, these aren't something that's fixed, uh, kind of fixed in the national character. Right, and you can really see that when they're put one up against the other, and you can see how differently they evolved and changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think, what would you say is um, missing from studies like this? Did you find um, any kinds of frustrations and things that you couldn't get at or, or couldn't um, find ways to, to analyze? Well, I mean, this is, the, except for the case of Brazil and the other three countries, this is the first, this, this is, um, I think, the first, or I think in many ways, in, in each of the three countries, it's the first large-scale, empirically-based uh, study, or at least, you know, it's one of the important ones. Uh, so, and, and, and uh, at least in terms of survey data, there, I don't think there's anything else like it. Um, so, so that's a big game. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, of course, we can't do everything. Uh, so, you know, there's not, in Latin America, as far as I know, there's no implicit bias studies. And that's, that's the fad right now. I mean, that's what people are into. You know, it's, people call themselves, they say they're not racist, but if you look at people do implicit bias tests, they find that they are. Um, so how does that work? I mean, there's also pair testing things, like you send people out, a black person and a white person, to look for the same job, and they have the same CV, etc. cetera. Uh, what are, what's the outcome? I mean, do, are they as likely to get callbacks for a, a second interview, etc.? So there's a lot of these other kinds of experimental um, ways to collect data that, that we didn't do, but we hope that we think we're, we're going to stir uh, people to to do eventually. So we're, I think it's, I think we're, we were successful in a lot of ways uh, in uh, opening up uh, this area or broadening it in terms of, of interest. Yeah, and actually my last question for you is where do you think this project is going to go from here? Do you have plans for it yourself or, like you said, do you have hopes that other people will pick up on these questions and, and pursue them? Right. Um, 
Well, we've been talking to a lot of people about this. I mean, I think this is this is different from uh, most academic books, and that we wanted to have legs um, or tails. Or I don't know how. You, <laughs> but but we want people to to uh, jump on it and and, uh, and pursue it. In fact, there you know it's already stimulated um, some ethnographies. Um, so people. Um, at the University of Texas, for example, are, are very interested in, in using the data. And we, we raise some questions uh, that might be, or that would be better addressed by seeing people in, in their in their in their real in their real context, and seeing then, them talking to them, etc. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, and what is your what is your next move? What is what are you working on at the moment? Um. Well, I'm currently working on. Uh, I went back to my immigration work uh, right now. I mean, I'm, I'm working on this book in the sense that we're doing book releases and conferences, um, and we're we're thinking as a group about what our next steps are. Uh, but meanwhile, I'm trying to finish a book that I uh, that I began on looking at uh, third and fourth generation Mexican Americans and how they think of their ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. And so, this is more an ethnography interview interviewer based interview based uh, work where people think about their identities uh, especially in the context of um, mass mass immigration right so how how do they feel about immigrants how do they feel about Spanish um, so what what does ethnicity mean to these people that you would think or a lot of people would think that they'd be completely assimilated. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, so did I. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.